welcome to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. Let's jump right in here. So we've been walking through the three kings of the Old Testament, Saul, David, Samuel, and we reopened church in September, middle of September last year. And we've been from that point in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, and now we've made it to chapter 16, verse 1, and we're walking through the scripture exegetically and seeing what God has to say to us. One of the reasons that we do this is because if you go through the scripture line by line, you can't skip the hard parts. You have to eat the whole beast. You know, in the sacrifice, when they sacrifice the lamb um, on the Passover night, when the Egyptians are holding the people of Israel and the people of God are going to escape from that tyranny, part of the way they escape is by eating the entire lamb. And oftentimes, especially today in our churches, we're not eating the entire lamb. We're avoiding the gross parts. And they're very, God's very specific to the people. He's like, eat the brains and the eyeballs and the guts. He's like, eat everything. Why is it? Why? Because God's weird and he likes people eating brains? No, because it's a symbolism that we're supposed to take all of God's word, all of his direction, all of his counsel and not avoid avoid the hard things. One of the, one of the best ways to grow a church, and Bethany and I were in church uh, plant training, and it's basically they said, don't talk about hard things. <laughs> they basically said, leave the hard things for small groups or like midweek meetings when people don't really show up, and we refuse to do that. Um, and so, and part of the reason is because we believe that there's freedom in the hard things. You know, like, the, the guy that says the hard things to be cool is a jerk. You know what I mean? The guy that says all the mean and hard and offensive things just for the sake of being offensive is just a jerk. But the person who says it for love is for freedom of other. The person who says it, and even, if, even when it's painful to say, it's for the freedom of the people of the body of Christ. And, um, and that's why we talk about hard things like sin, like divorce, like homosexuality, like these really hard issues that people don't want to talk about, especially on a day in New York City where it's Pride Parade in Midtown right now and people are celebrating their bondage. They're, they're marching through the streets celebrating bondage. And it's not the first time. I mean, people have been celebrating bondage for the history of mankind. Every major culture for the history of mankind has celebrated their bondage. The devil loves people to celebrate their bondage. He wants people to glory in their shame and glory in their chains. And sin is actually pleasurable for a moment. And then it brings us to death. And the jaws of death do not open back up but for Jesus Christ and resurrection to new life. And so, um, anyway, if you want to talk more about that stuff, we're happy to do so. It's, well, slightly off topic because it's not 1 Samuel 16.1. So let's go into it. Here we go. 1 Samuel, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him king over Israel? Fill your horn and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Um, the commentary, the Cambridge commentary on this portion of scripture says something really really bold. 
It says oftentimes we as Christians have more sympathy for people than God does. It's like, wow, is that true? Is that a true statement? Is it possible to have more sympathy for people than God does? Are there people that we have in our life as believers who God doesn't want us to have in our life, but because of our sympathetic nature, we decide to be connected heart to heart with people that are unbelievers, people that do damage in relationship with you, people that when you hang out with, you turn back into your old man. I remember when I first got saved, I was 19. Like There were certain people that I, if I hung out with those people again, I was immediately again not a Christian anymore. In practice, right? I still believed in Jesus. I still you know, repented of my sins two days later, but as soon as I got around those people that weren't living in accordance with God's way, it changed who I was. And God says to Samuel here, he's like, dude, I know you loved Saul deeply, and I know your heart is broken, but he has rejected me over and over again. If you remember the story, and you remember how we kind of walked through, Saul didn't make a single mistake. It's this litany of mistakes, and his heart is, is steeped in insecurity, and out of insecurity, he's doing really stupid things, and he's not changing. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is changing your heart. It's turning your heart. It doesn't mean perfection, it means direction. Repentance is not about you being perfect, it's about you changing your heart's direction and directing yourself back towards Christ. 1 Corinthians 5 says this, but now I am writing not for, I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a verbal abuser, someone who abuses people around them at all times, that's one of the sins I can't handle, a drunkard or a swindler with such a man do not even eat. But pastor, that's my core bro. But pastor, I've known that person for so long. I love them, and I know one day God will change them. This is not my idea or my opinion. Paul says if there are people that are steeped in these kinds of sins, do not even eat with them. Have nothing to do with them. There's people that are full of... Uh, animus or bitterness, you know, it says about a root of bitterness in the church, it says a root of bitterness will spring up and pollute many in the body of Christ. It's one of the sins that pollutes those around it. I was hanging out with a guy out of town on one of my trips recently, and he was talking about how much he hates his pastor. He's left that church because of a conflict he had, and he, all he could talk about is how much he hated his past, last pastor. I'm like, oh man, this is a gross bitterness. I'm sure this poisons everyone he's around back home. It's gross, man. Forgive, you dope. You will never be released from the chains unless you forgive. What are you doing? This is like Christianity 101. This is the baby stuff. If you don't forgive, you don't get forgiven. If you walk in bitterness, you yourself are in bondage and in chains. And so Paul is saying, believers who I love deeply and dearly, I want you to walk in freedom, and you will not walk in freedom if you bind yourself to people that are in these kinds of sin and are steeped in these kinds of sin. New York Christians do not do this. They do not believe in 
in a community of saints that's a saintly community, that people that aren't saints can come in and be a part and taste, they think it's just fine to have like a thousand secular friends and a thousand Christian friends. It's totally fine. They don't read the Bible where Paul says there are people that you are not allowed even to eat with because they will damage the, 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 the delicate shoot of faith that has grown up by the Spirit of God. Because like when we're, when, we're, when we're new in Christ, there's a delicacy to that shoot. We become through Christ and process and nature by the Holy Spirit oaks of righteousness. And we can withstand and we can do all kinds of stuff. But at the beginning, when our faith is delicate, it's when we're supposed to be the most cautious with who we surround ourselves with. And so Paul, in this book in, in Corinthians, there's some people that are in some really terrible sin. He kicks them out of the church. And then in 2 Corinthians, he brings them back in. And what's the difference between 1 and 2 Corinthians? Time, growth, maturity, strength, the ability to not be persuaded. Do you know what I mean? I asked you this morning to look at the relationships that you have in your life. Are they just drinking buddies? Are they just party people? Do they pray with you? Uh, Zubin is not here this morning, but every single time I hang out with Zubin, every single time, he says, now let's pray about it right now. And I always, I'm like, I should be the one saying that. I'm the pastor. <laughs> he's, the, he's the scientist. And he puts his hand on my shoulder and we pray together and it's always amazing. Christian community is about us coming together and encouraging each other in our faith, growing in the Lord together, like spurring one another on towards righteousness, towards godliness, towards his goodness, towards his peace, towards forgiveness, towards the fruit of the Spirit. It's not just like I have friends and they believe the same thing as I believe and we play boggle all the time and then we go about our life. It's like, it's cool, we have the same set of beliefs. No, that's, we're missing the whole boat of Christian community if that's it. I remember as a young man, I, would, I had two, two guys that I prayed with and we would come together and we'd play our guitars and sing and worship and we'd cry to the Lord and we would, we would weep and we would call out to him and we'd write songs and we'd sing and pray for hours together and the, the older I get, the less I see that, and the, and the less I see it in the church. And in New York City, I almost never see it, ever, with almost any Christians, unless the church puts on some kind of thing that says, hey, this is the night we pray. But why is that? Why don't we pray together? Why don't we seek God together? Why don't we do the things that we did at first, when the Lord was alive and afresh in our life, and we were taken by him. So Samuel says to Saul, or God says to Samuel, bro, you gotta, you gotta cut off this painful attachment and you have to move on in a new relationship. Verse four, it says, Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yeah, I come in peace. I come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves to sacrifice with me. 
Is this funny? Is this a weird portion of scripture to anyone else? Like, why are the people terrified that the prophet comes to town? He, right, he had just chopped up a king like five verses earlier. He just literally chopped up a king with a sword. And he's now showing up at your town. And you're like, okay, what are you doing here, guy? Do you know the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? We have a culture that's just thrown out the fear of God. A church culture that's thrown out the fear of God. And, and, and hence, it's thrown away wisdom. And so our churches are packed with fools because we don't do the first thing first, which is fear of the Lord. I remember I was a kid, and um, the fear of the Lord holds you into the boundaries of right relationship. I was a kid, and I was sitting in the back of the car, and I was probably, I think probably in the second grade, second or third grade, I was just old enough to spell, and it was winter time, upstate New York, blizzard season, we're driving through the Catskills, not the Catskills, we lived in the Hudson Valley at the time. We're driving through the Hudson Valley, and I was blowing on the window to my right here and writing on the window. Who did that as a kid? Everybody that didn't grow up on a subway? Everyone else that had a car that they grew up in? Blowing on the windows and drawing things and being annoying your parents because it just gets grimy. If you're a parent and you have kids, grimy-fingered windows are a gross thing. Um, I always feel bad when I see a minivan drive by with grimy fingered windows. <laughs> I guess it's a picture of life though. Um, so I was, I, was, I was scrawling on the window a dark uh, word <laughs> that starts with F and ends with something, a letter <laughs> related to our church. Um, <laughs> I was blowing on the window and writing it and wiping it off real quick because my dad's driving the car and I was being evil because I was an evil little child. I still am evil to some days, which is why I need Jesus in my life, right? And so I was blowing on the window and writing this dark word, <laughs> wiping it off. And then I was doing the stupidest thing. I was like, let's see how long we could keep it there before anyone notices. And I was, uh, whatever, I'm like finishing up and I'm finishing up the K and I'm coming down and I look over and my dad, has turned his gaze upon me from the front seat of the car. And then you're like, I don't even know if I should wipe it off. This this is real now. This is a time where you... (laughs) And he slams on the brakes, and a car pulls over on the side of the road, and I am swiftly taken from the car and and disciplined on the outside, on, on the side of the road. And my brothers are like, what is happening? What's going on? It's like, my dad didn't say a word. He just, like, fire in his eyes. Cruz ice skated around the car. <laughs> pulled me out. And guess what I never did again for the rest of my life? Guess what I never did again? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end of wisdom. It's not the end point in relationship with God. We learn that God is loving and good and trustworthy and patient and kind and gentle and all of those things. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning that if, if we don't have a Jesus that dies for our sin, there is a judgment that waits for us. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning place where we say, God, I, I, I understand that you're my father and I've been hearing a lot about that, and that's cool, but I also understand that if I walk in darkness, judgment comes upon me. That's how you created the world. And because I'm your son and you love me, you don't 
want me to walk in judgment. If I get hammered and I start driving my car through the streets of Manhattan, an angel is not coming to take the wheel. You know what I mean? Angel, take the wheel. That was great falsetto, Pastor. Wow. Um, if I get hammered and I start driving through the streets of Manhattan, I will crash my car and I will get arrested and I will lose my law license and I will be ashamed in front of my church and probably disciplined by my elders and all of that kind of stuff. Sin brings consequences. It always does. And if we have a healthy fear of the Lord, it's part of the buffer that keeps us from sin. It protects us from consequences that God doesn't actually want in the lives of his children because he wants us to flourish and grow. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, James 3.16. There's a famous New Testament verse, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've heard it before. But the context of the verse is actually just as you have always obeyed. The context is obedience because the context is God wants blessing in our life. Disobedience brings not blessing. Amen? All right. Next verse, verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord has anointed this guy, and here he stands before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. We currently live in a culture that bases judgment upon outward experience, outward expression, the way people look, the way things act. We have churches that are engaging in racial quotas. They're literally judging based upon how the thing looks. Do you guys have enough white people on your staff? If you don't, then you are a racist. That is literally judging based upon how a thing looks as opposed to judging the heart. That's literally exactly what it is. And, and, and the funny thing about this is it's not just a, a secular person or an unrighteous person or some bad guy that's judging based upon a thing looks. This is the guy that God talks to. This is the man of God who's representing the voice of God to the people, and he's judging based upon the way a thing looks. How easy is it for us, especially in a visual generation, to judge things based upon how they look, as opposed to what the heart is? I was on a, um, I was on a podcast with one of my more famous friends, and I'm reading through all the comments, and uh, one of the comments said, that guy looks like a Chad, and I was like, you son of a gun. I don't know, do you know what a Chad is? I had to look it up, and then I was offended after I looked it up. <laughs> Chad is like a jock, and I was not a jock. I was very skinny, believe it or not, and had no friends, and lonely, and depressed as a teenager, and until I got saved. And I was a zero, ch- I was a negative Chad. I was, if there's an opposite of Chad, that's what I was. Which is odd, because, um, anyway. But the kid looking at the video is like, I just know that guy was like the star quarterback of the team and he won all the touchdowns, and he got all the girls, and he was the alpha male of his whole life, and that's actually exactly the opposite of who I was. 
I have been, by the grace of God, transformed from an incredibly insecure, angry young person into somebody that is walking in the peaceable fruit of righteousness, has an incredible family, and God's been blessing, not because I'm the star quarterback, just because I know how to turn my heart back to Jesus. Like, you know, we have so much get-rich schemes inside the church, so many like create your vision, have your five-year plan, have your 10-year plan, and God's got a, you know, some kind of exciting destiny for you, and just gun for it, and you'll make it if you make the right connections, and you, you John Maxwell it, and I'm, I think that stuff can be valuable, but it also can be a massive idol. Like the, like the vision of who I think God wants me to be can be a massive idol in our lives. And the key to success in the kingdom of heaven is loving Jesus. The key to success in the kingdom of heaven is turning your heart towards him, reading your scripture and saying, God, this doesn't look a whole lot like me. Can you please keep working on my heart? Can you please humble me so I'll be exalted? Because if I don't want to exalt myself, because your, your word says that you op oppose the proud. And I don't want to be a guy that's gunning for something for the sake of me. I just want to love Jesus and let him take me where he wants to take me. Amen? Verse 10, Jesse had seven sons, and he passed, they passed before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. And so he asked Jesse, are all these, son, are all these the sons you have? And he said, there is still the youngest. And Jesse answered, he is tending his sheep. And Samuel said, send for him, and we will not sit down until he arrives. This is this part of the stories where preachers get loud and talk about, you know, you being overlooked and left over and all that kind of stuff. But there's something, there's a, there's a connection here between Jesus and David. And the, the David and Jesus connection is that Jesus wasn't really his father's, not his earthly father's, his earthly father's son. There was a separation between Jesus and his earthly parents, um, and, and you see that in, in the New Testament where some of the Pharisees are questioning the legitimacy of Jesus' birth. And here we have, scholars have been talking about this, and it's speculation. Um, they've speculated on the legitimacy of David's birth. Uh, they, the, the commentary says that his brothers were dark and uh, dark complexion, and David doesn't look like any of them. He has red hair, he's ruddy, he's got red cheeks, he's, he looks different, and he's not called in uh, with the father's seven, his, his seven brothers. He's left out in the field. And it makes me wonder that, you know, he, he writes this psalm, Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. And so you know, there's a lot of people saying, well, perhaps David was an illegitimate child, and we don't know if that's the case or not, but we do know there was clearly an issue with him and his father on earth. The, the prophet comes to anoint one of his sons king, and he's left behind. He is not the guy that's called in. He's left out with the sheep. And I, I, I see this picture between uh, Jesus and his earthly father, and Jesus and his heavenly father. And I wonder if, if David's challenge allowed him to sing in Psalm 27, 
For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. In Psalm 68, 5, he says, He is the father of the fatherless. The protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. I said, I said a few weeks ago that New York is one of the places where people escape when they have trouble with their families. And I wonder how many of us have had seasons in our life where we feel like we've been fatherless, where we haven't had a mom or a dad that's been in our life to be present or have felt forsaken. I certainly know because of life and the world and conflict and different opinions, I've had seasons in my life where I have definitely not felt like I've had a mom and a dad, like there's been so much chaos in the relationship that I've felt abandoned. And David, instead of being hard or bitter or frustrated or angry or turning to substance, he looks at God and he says, for though my father and mother have forsaken me, the Lord will take me in. I just think it's such an incredible statement that it's, it's the heart of God to want to take in the fatherless. And we have a generation of fatherless. In the black community in New York City, 75% of children are fatherless. The father is not present in their life at a rate of 75%. Do you know, the, you know God wants to be people's father? You know God wants to restore relationship? You know, God wants to be the father that people haven't had or were, was broken or gone. And he becomes a father to the fatherless. And David, he's, he's out with the sheep. He's a shepherd. And he's in a small town. Bethlehem is a really tiny town. And he's out in the sheep outside of a small town. So you're talking about like the most obscure of the most obscure place. He's serving with the lowly. He's got a job with the sheep. Like, like, you think of the symbolism of the sheep. It's like this lowly animal in a lowly town in the outskirts of this lowly town. And he finds a father in God. And a lot of us are looking for a position and we've forgotten to look for a father. A lot of us are looking to fulfill our destiny in New York City, and we've stopped looking for a father. And God wants to be the father to the fatherless. He wants to take in sons and daughters by his spirit. He wants to meet you in your room while on your, you're on your knees, and his presence shows up and speak to you and know you. He wants to be a father to the fatherless. David wasn't just talking about an entity that's far off sitting on a star somewhere. That's not what a father is. A father is present. A father encourages. A father protects. A father guards. A father guides. A good father doesn't control. A good father doesn't force. A good father guides. A good father won't even tell you what to do. Do you know that? A good father will tell you options because he wants you to grow in wisdom and strength. We want people to tell us what to do all the time. Sometimes we're asking God, like, God, what should I do here? And he's like, I'm going to give you the guidelines because I want you to grow. I don't want to just be, I don't want you to be my robot. I want you to develop. I want you to be someone that's shining, that's a son that represents me. But I think David, 
he's singing this song and there's this relationship to him and Jesus. And when Jesus comes to the people of earth, he represents God as father first. He's the first person other than David in scripture. He's, he's really the only person uh, other than a couple of the prophets that reveals the heart of God. And certainly David is the first person in the scripture to reveal the heart of God as father. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he says, guys, I want you to see this God that wants to be your father. Verse 12. So he sent for him and he brought him in and he was glowing with health and he had a fine appearance and handsome features and the Lord said, rise and anoint him for this is the one. Verse 13 says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. I've, for, for, I think for about a month, I've, I have, I've had this thought lodged in my spirit about the desire of man to be something versus the simplicity of loving and knowing God. And we have made, as a, as a church culture, I've certainly participated in making destiny an idol. And David is called to kingship, right? So our church is called King's, King's Church because we believe that we're called to be kings and not just live a priestly life before God, but we actually have a destiny in the world. But David doesn't get there by plan. He gets there by loving Jesus in this sense, loving God in the fields. He gets to the place where he's anointed by God by being faithful with the most lowly thing. He gets to the place where he's anointed by God, where his spirit is grabbed by God from the obscure of the obscure. I've, uh, you know, I've been in church for many years and there's always been the guy that I can't handle that when the guest speaker comes in, he guns towards that person because he believes his, that position around men will exalt him. He believes that if he meets the right people, he'll get exalted. He believes if he says the right thing to the right person that he'll be exalted. God exalts David from absolute and utter obscurity. All we can figure out that David is doing, and we, we, we know this because here chapter 16 is the middle of the book. It splits the book in half. And in the middle of 16, David's discovered. In the second half of 16, David goes to Saul's house to play and to sing. And so we know he was only doing those two things before that, that in the field with the sheep, he was watching over them, and singing to the Lord and playing to the Lord. And the simplicity of loving God in obscurity is all it takes for God to grab a hold of you and turn you into a king. And I want to I want to actually care less about being a king and I want to care more about loving God in the simplicity about going to the place where I'm alone with him where no one sees me, where no one can 
look, I'm not raising my hands to get people in church to raise their hands. I'm not singing loud to get other people to sing loud, but only where God only sees me and my heart is directed only towards him and that I'm content in a place before him. My father-in-law, Jim Anderson, here was, was here last week, and he said he, he went through a season where he was really bitter at some people in his church, and he fell into this deep, dark depression. And right at the end of the depression, God came to him, and he said, where did you go? You were someone that come and would come and spend time with me, and you would search for me in my word, and you would sing, and you would pray, and you would be in my presence. Where did you go? Why did you go so far away from me? And I'm, I'm just, in my life, I'm saying, God, would you take me out into the obscure that I could call upon you alone, not for the sake of being called to some greatness, but because contentment in the field is, this, is greater than discontentment in some place with kings. Contentment in the field with God is a greater place to live and to be than being discontent, striving for the next place, uh, driving for the next paycheck or the next bonus or the next thing that's going to make you feel fulfilled when we know it doesn't actually do it. It's the place in the obscure with the presence of God that is the most fulfilling place. And that's why the scripture says, that God exalts the humble and he opposes the proud. And I want to be a church that's not found in the mighty and the great things, but that's found in the obscurity of loving Jesus. There was something about the Benedictine monks that they got a hold of this idea and they left society and they abandoned Rome and they said, we just want to live by ourselves and love Jesus and be alone. And I want to break a church culture that says, I'm going to be in church because God's going to make me something. And I want to create church culture that says, I want to be in church because I want to love God. Because he's been so incredibly good for me. He's a father to me. He's taken me in. He's provided for me and he's encouraged me and he's strengthened me. And when I've been alone and broken, he's come to me. And when I don't know what to do, he gives wisdom. And he wants to. And he made us for that kind of relationship, not just a transactional relationship, but a relationship where we find him in the obscure place and he fills our heart with his song and reveals his heart to us and his nature. Amen? Why don't you stand with me, church? Lord, we thank you that you sent Jesus to us, the good shepherd who knows his sheep and calls them by name. And that, Lord, you called us not just for things, but for you. And so, Lord, would you call us deeper into relationship with you, deeper into prayer and deeper into your word, God, deeper into the simplicity of knowing you and the purity of being with you.
God, would you shake off the things in our life, the relationships, the ideas that are not of your kingdom, God, the struggle. God, would you take us into solitude with your presence? Would you wake us in the morning with your spirit calling to us? Would you come and haunt us, Lord? Till we're taken out into the lonely and we're with only you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We really believe that God wants you to know him in a personal and tangible way. If there's any way we can assist your journey, please reach out to kcnyc.org. In the darkness.